Start jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening. Whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the event horizon where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow. And I am your other host, Susan Fox. And with us is Patrick Willems. Uh, You're a a YouTuber. You do video essays about movies. Uh, You've been doing this for 10 years, and you've got one heck of a Patreon following and one heck of a following on uh, YouTube itself. 365,000 subscribers. That is no small feat. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's it's a, a pleasure to be here. So... Your PR person who contacted our protection coordinator uh, showed us the Charles saga, of all things. (laughs) I guess googly eyes are in this year. Charles. Uh, Much to my surprise, I did not expect this to be to be a thing. (laughs) Yeah, the uh, the Charles saga, the entire season storyline that you published six days ago already has 13,000 views and. Seven days ago, uh, you published the trailer for the uh, the season finale, Night of the Coconut. <laughs> did you see his sales page? They have plushy Charles now. No, I, I didn't see that. Really? <laughs> yep. We, 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 we need, we need since, we've had this since uh, late 2020. <laughs> Lots of things we've new. had. Yeah. It is. I, 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 I do want to just say right now, this is the first like interview I've done about this project. Uh, and it is so strange to hear people say these things out loud. <laughs> when it, they start, it, 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 I'm like, oh my god, you know what this is? You, when, when you see the cosplay at the conventions, then you've made it. Yeah. <laughs> well, that would be an goal. awesome I, I, I just, I, this has all been just one long con to just just trick someone into dressing as a coconut. <laughs> I'll do it. I'll so, do it. so for the listen, okay. for the listening audience who is unfamiliar with Charles, tell us tell us about the Charles saga. Okay, that's uh, that's a really really good question and uh, one that I continually struggle with despite this dominating most of my life for the past two years. And wait, yeah, two years. And uh, I will do my best to explain it. So. In general, what I do for a living is I run a YouTube channel that is my name, uh, and and on that channel I make kind of long form video essays analyzing movies. That that that's it. It's like you know, like deep dives into film criticism, uh, just you know, just ver- various aspects of cinema that I am excited about. And because before I started making video essays, what I was mostly doing and sort of like the my main passion you could say is uh narrative filmmaking is is making movies as opposed to talking about movies and 
I found that just doing the purely analytical, like nonfiction uh, film criticism part, I was getting a little bit bored with only doing it that way. And the work was a little bit dry, just writing the essays. And so what I started doing, I think in about 2018, was beginning to add these narrative framing devices to the videos. So, you know, kind of treating each one kind of as like an essay within a short film, where there would be some kind of uh, like, like narrative conceit that would set up why I was going to talk about that topic. And so what came out of this is just you know, I ended up kind of becoming a character in this show where there was kind of a fictional version of me who, you know, would usually end up uh, like cornering his friends and family and uh, and monologuing to them about, I don't know, some like film subgenre or like a, a director's filmography or something like that. And and as this continued, uh, and, and I brought in a lot of like uh, my, my usual collaborators that I've been working with and making movies with since high school, a lot of them. And uh, uh, and we would kind of expand the, the narrative devices and get a little bit more ambitious with it. And and then, and here's what actually happened. I noticed that people were logging my videos on IMDb and uh, as if they were a TV show. So someone put on there like a TV show called Patrick Willems Video Essays. And, and they would credit everyone who appeared in all the videos. It was really thorough. And what they, they were doing, who I don't know who these people are, but they started listing each year of of videos as a separate season. And so I had this idea at the end of 2019 of what if for the next year, as this weird experiment, we decided to treat a, a year of videos as an actual season of television and have a full serialized narrative storyline run through all these videos. And again, to be clear, these videos are uh, are just film analysis. This is not in general like a, a, a fictional show. Um, and so we decided to do this and we, we figured out a general plan uh, as in I was already going to go on this vacation uh, to Mexico for a week in January 2020. And so our, our initial premise was uh, was what if Patrick came back from vacation and seemed a little weird and he brought back uh this coconut with googly eyes that he <laughs> that, that that he claimed was the new cast member on the show and uh and then the other characters on the show would decide to like to in- investigate what's what's going on with patrick why is he acting so kind of uh so ruthlessly ambitious so has, has his personality shifted why does he have this weird inanimate object he's talking to did he suffer some kind of trauma on on this trip or something like that and this was basically just kind of a fun storytelling experiment for myself and and my collaborators who who, who worked on these just just for fun uh just because we're, we're constantly trying to find new ways to, to make to make the videos like challenging and exciting rather than just repeating the same thing over and over again which is what youtube generally wants you to do just find a thing and do that forever uh and so I, I'm very, very grateful that uh, the audience that that we built uh, up up to then uh, were pretty open minded and and really got into this strange thing that that we decided to to do. And so, as 2020 went on, and you know, it, it brought complications as, as it was a strange year. And uh, but during all of this, people really came to embrace this strange storyline we built on these videos and uh, and would start to and, and what i found that was that's not usually the case is 
in in the realm of what we often call film YouTube, uh, the part of YouTube where people you know analyze movies and make video essays about them, a lot of the time, um, viewers will just watch the videos that are about topics that they're already interested in, like movies they already care about. And what I started finding was that, like looking at the analytics on the channel, is that the viewers the same amount of viewers would watch every single video regardless of what the topic was, whether it was about like a big blockbuster movie or about like a really weird niche thing that they didn't, you know, they didn't care about beforehand because they were invested in this narrative we were building. And that kind of gave us the freedom to lean harder and harder into it and get make it stranger and stranger as it went on and get like more heavily serialized. So it got to the point where I, the last regular video of what we called the season, which came out in uh may of last year uh contained a half hour video essay surrounded by 15 minutes of just pure narrative film and then at the end what our plan always was uh was that 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 episode would leave off with the words to be concluded and then we would end this all in uh what was supposed to be a 25 to 30 minute short film and then ballooned into a 90 minute feature film <laughs> which is which is coming out uh next friday uh june 17th on the streaming platform nebula uh-huh. uh and uh and i realized I've, I've said all of this without really saying a single word about what charl is or even taking is, a breath <laughs> yeah yeah it's um this is good Ho- hopefully uh you know within a week uh I'll have figured out, I'll have condensed this into about a, a, you know, a tenth of the time that I took to say right there. I will say, um, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, Charl is, uh, is a googly-eyed coconut uh, who is revealed to be uh, a genocidal criminal from a parallel universe. He is, uh, uh, Charles stands for um, uh, clout-hungry artificial robotic life form. Nailed it, and he is incredible. And he is uh, he's from another dimension, and he uses a shape shifting module to disguise himself as he moves from dimension to dimension, reaping the energy benefits of clout in social media. I can't believe that this information now occupies space in your brain. <laughs> such a, it's such a weird thing to think about. As in, like, this is like, I don't want to say this was an inside joke, uh, because this is not actually, it's not an inside joke, but it, but it, but it was a thing that, that some, some of my closest friends and I basically did to entertain ourselves. And now, you know, we're selling... Charles plushies. Uh, we're, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're about to release a new line of merchandise tied into the finale, including uh, an enamel pin that we already had Charles enamel pins, but now we're releasing a new variant, which is uh, Charles covered in blood from, <laughs> af- from after he murders uh, my 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 close personal friend Jake Torby, uh, and uh, this is all very strange. Like, all of this, like I, uh, all of this feels like I, I pulled some kind of con on the universe, and uh, and, and the fact that that, that other that, that people I don't know personally are are aware of of all of this, and and we got to make we have to spend the last year making a movie uh, that is all like. And again, to be clear, in this movie, uh, myself and many of my close friends just play fictionalized versions of ourselves it's it's this is a really weird thing and and this it's not lost on me how 
how bizarre and incredible it is that so many people around the world are aware of this and actually care about it. I think that's really cool. I think it's cool that you... I mean, most filmmakers start out with an idea and then they gather funding they need to go do the idea and then they make the idea and then they release the idea to a waiting world. And you started by producing before you had the before you had an idea and then once you were producing and you had an audience already then you slipped the idea in to see what would happen and it grew on its own and became this organic thing that sort of took everything over and uh so you you did it upside down to the way most filmmakers have to do things it's kind of meta isn't it i think Charles yeah. just snuck in there on his own and it, it is invoking the cloud so for, for instance in um at I think it was at the end of 2020, we made a video where I decided, I, what if we made this video on musical and <laughs> actually, you know, had had a full written and produced musical number in this video. This video, which again, is just a video essay. It's just a piece of film criticism. And in, in, this, in this big musical number, there is the recurring line, uh, Charl is the key to our success. And uh, and uh, it's very funny how um, that was a joke, and it's at this point it's not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Because all of this again, I like things were going generally quite well with with the channel, just doing regular video essays, and uh, and we kind of you know snuck this thing in, uh, and and. and and it got to the point where it just grew to the point where we managed to actually get a movie made. Because look, I've my goal has always been like for you know since I was in in, in high school or, or even before that, like I'm like I wanna I wanna make feature films. That is the goal. And you know I wasn't complaining about having this career making video essays. That it was going really well. I was having a really fun time with it. And uh, and we might managed to just kind of like you know almost as like a backdoor pilot just uh sneak this thing in like into into the video essays and it just expanded and expanded and and now you know next tuesday at a, a theater in new york we're having like a proper movie premiere uh for for this thing and uh it's uh again i'm i'm very grateful i'm i'm i'm, mm -hmm. I'm really I'm, I'm genuinely like humbled by the fact that, that that people care about this but also i think it's objectively extremely funny well, I think it sort of grew out of, uh, you know, out of a seed the way the uh, the way the online comic book phenomenon Homestuck did. Oh, wow. This is the first time I've heard this compared to Homestuck, which is uh, not inaccurate, but but pretty funny. Yeah, it's I, I mean, I the thing that I notice about it is that uh, everybody loves the story. And um, y what you have is sort of like a. I don't know, a science fiction alternate reality soap opera thing centering around a mad coconut? <laughs> yeah, but I everybody think... knows someone like that who thrives on the energy of, of you know, attention. Come on, you know. Yeah, anyone it... who's ever met an actor, for God's sake. Right. It's uh, that's, that's a really good way of putting it, because... In general, with with all of this, whether it's you know when we were just doing the season and then you know going into the movie, uh, this has pretty much all been a process of just rolling with the opportunities that have been presented and just like uh, taking the situation that that we end up in and trying to to do something with this. And and the reality of it is that you know I was making this this internet show uh, in which I like. Uh, 
I like the, I, I guess the the uh, the character of Patrick Willems uh, is the host of a video essay show, and his friends and family appear every so often as themselves. And so this was this was our scenario, and uh, and so this is what we had to work with, and uh, and then it just kind of expanded from there, and uh, and and it gets to the point where you know I've got. Uh, this this coconut like literally murdering uh my my <laughs> friends who are playing themselves mm-hmm. and uh and and it was it was a fun challenge as well because especially like doing this week to week we really just had to adapt to whatever real life scenarios presented themselves and so it, so it was a really interesting storytelling challenge because for instance when the pandemic hit mm-hmm. uh and then at the time, I in mid March 2020, I happened to visit my parents for a weekend, uh, right when things got really bad in New York, Ooh. and uh, and so initially I was thinking, oh, okay, I'll just stay until the end of the week until this blows over and it's like safe to go back to the city. Um, skip ahead five months, mm-hmm. and I've just been Yikes. living with my parents for there yeah, for for the past five months, and um, but then this this came into the challenge of like, okay how do we adjust the show because i have to make it now from my parents house and also uh how do we we've already had this narrative but all these narrative beats planned out for the year but now we're all quarantined in different places how do we find a way to adapt to this continue the narrative threads uh but maybe kind of i guess i don't, I don't want to say stall but uh but I, I i guess you know postpone some of the narrative beats that we'd had planned that now that can't happen until we can actually be in person together so that happens then one of our major characters in the show was uh my roommate at the time matt Mm -hmm. uh and um and then when i finally got back to the city uh in august you know matt had decided to move out of new york city and uh and so suddenly we're, we're like okay okay uh, he was a major character in the show, but now he is moving away. How do we incorporate this into the narrative? Because he, we have to write him out of the show, but how can we find a narrative, per, uh, uh, like a narrative reason for him to leave? And then also thinking ahead to, well, once we get to the finale, inevitably we'll have to find a, a reason for him to return. And so it, it, it began this bizarre melding of real life and fiction, uh, where, where they all where they all kind of like fold in on each other. And uh, and, and and again, this is a, a very strange thing to think about because you know when a friend tells me this like you know fairly major like life decision about like hey uh, I'm going to I'm going to you know move four hours away uh, then then what. A, one of my first thoughts is okay, how, how do we deal with this in the show? Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and so uh, this is all a long way of saying that, uh, you know, we started this project as a fun kind of storytelling challenge and experiment uh, using this format that we were already working in. And, uh, and it just presents, it, it continues to present itself as, as this, this, you know, a constant challenge, but also like this, you know, like every every week, something new would come up that we would have to adapt to. Whether it was, you know, uh, like like pandemic restrictions or just people's schedules and things like that. And um and and I will say I uh I wouldn't change any of it. I, well, actually, okay, I, I would love it if there wasn't a pandemic. That would be really really good. yeah. But but other than that, I, like all of the things that that impacted the show specifically, uh, all all of it ended up being really rewarding in different ways. 
I was uh, looking at your list of videos, and uh, you've got stuff going back years, of course, because you, your channel, has, you started it in 2011, so you've been doing yes. this a while. You I, have... Well, I've been doing this a while. The channel uh, was not profitable for five and a half years, so it took a long that. time until it actually became like my day job. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was going to be my next question, is when, when did it, when did you... When did you go full time with it? Yeah. When did you decide to give up? Okay, okay, I'm doing well enough with this. I can quit my day job. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it was helpful because for years my day job was freelance video work, which tends to have a pretty, uh, you know, a, a constantly shifting schedule that that often would would allow for a, like a, a lot of free time to work on this on the side. Because for a long time, I, I kind of started. Uh, doing freelance video work, and then I started the channel at the same time in 2011. Hmm. And the plan was always uh, keep doing the channel, and then hopefully, eventually, that can become the day job. And and it's funny, like over those five and a half years, there were occasional, uh, th- there were there were some moments where I really thought, oh, this might be it. This this is the time that it's gonna pop and and suddenly it's all going to work out like especially after um still the most successful video i've ever made was the what if wes anderson directed x-men yes. in 2015 that was fun uh, that was uh that was a really fun uh you know few months after that came out that that like you know went viral and all of that and i suddenly had meetings all over the place with producers and production companies and it really seemed like a bunch of things were going to happen uh like like I really thought I might be done with YouTube and I could just go off and, you know, oh, oh, cool. I'm going to, like, you know, get to make stuff with real budgets now. Anyway, all literally every project that came up fell apart and then I was back at square one. And uh, and then what ended up happening was at, at in late 2016, uh, when I was really thinking of maybe giving up on YouTube, uh, because I was like, I, I was very confident that the Wes Anderson X-Men would be a hit just based on, like, I... I, I was confident in that idea. I was like, I think if, if we make this well, it's going to succeed. And and I was right about that. But then after that, a- after all the opportunities from that dried up, I was thinking, I don't have any ideas that good. That 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 was that was my one, and uh, nothing else is as commercial as that one. And so I had this thought in in the fall of 2016 that I will. I took a couple months off from making videos. And I was thinking, I'll. I'll give it one last go. And what I decided to do was, for a while, because the videos were, there were all these like narrative shorts and uh, and all of them were really elaborate productions that would often take weeks to make. And so I would only release a video every three or four weeks and there was no consistent schedule. And I decided that, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna switch things up a bit. And, and for a few months, I'm gonna give YouTube one last go. And this time I will release a video every single Wednesday and have a consistent schedule for the first time in years because YouTube does tend to, to reward having a consistent release schedule. And, and I, since I knew I couldn't make a short film every single week, I decided I'll, I'll try some different types of videos. And, um, and one thought I had was, look, I have, I'm like, I have a degree in cinema studies, you know, I, I I know how to write an essay about film, and and yeah, uh, film-related video essays have become a big thing on YouTube. So I was like, I'll I'll try one of those. Probably no one's going to watch it, and uh, but I'll, I'll give it a shot. And and for years I had been complaining to my friends about the kind the the uh, bland, very gray uh, 
color grading and visual aesthetic of the Marvel Studios movies. And um, and so and at that point, I'd, I, I my friends were so sick of me hearing about I was just sick of hearing about this, that that I had kind of refined my like all of my complaints into a pretty into a pretty tight essay. And so I made this video essay called Why Do Marvel's Movies Look Kind of Ugly that I was pretty sure no one would watch. Uh, as has, as has happened to me a lot over the years, I was very wrong. Uh, the video kind of blew up, got got a few million views, and suddenly uh, the channel started like uh, our audience started growing rapidly. And I realized that oh, uh, this is working. I need I need to to continue with this because this could actually be the thing that that makes the channel profitable. And so I started making more video essays. And and the more of them I made, the more the audience grew. And by and honestly, about eight months later, around summer 2017, was when the channel became my main source of income. And then I believe it was spring 2018 that I did my last freelance video gig. I had to tell my main clients, "I'm sorry, uh, I'm 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 not going to have time to, to to make any more videos with you guys. I, I, this other thing has is kind of." monopolizing all my time and so so yeah at this point it's been just about five years of this being my full-time job that's an amazing trail i mean you have stayed the the great thing is that you stayed on the trail the whole time and uh you might have had your doubts here and there but you stuck with it and it paid (sighs) off and this is just it's 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 encouraging is what it is because there are so many people who have uh, wonderful ideas for things and they try them out and they don't for whatever reason it doesn't click either they don't have enough resources to put into it or they don't have the the faith in themselves that it takes to go all the way with it or they don't have the business sense you know or the quality of the content i mean yeah the quality of the people, content people are suck. coming back for a reason yeah you don't sit through a half hour of video uh, you know commentary unless there's something really really compelling you to do so yeah i i, I like to think so it's uh, I, I mean i I'm not saying this is like this is the rule and it works for everybody, but I, I do think there is something to simply like it's very easy to find reasons to to give up at this kind of work when it's not succeeding like you hoped it would right away, and and a lot of this, um, like I'm not saying like oh I'm I'm amazing at this or anything like that. It's uh, like, like I think I do reasonably solid work, but I do think there is something to be said for simply. Uh, sticking with something long enough and 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 really making an effort to to improve at it constantly over time and just because again i I came pretty close to to quitting and uh and and pivoting into you know some other line of work i mean like probably i'd still just be doing freelance video stuff or but but i I was really like like in 2016 i i was actually starting to just apply for like regular day jobs as like a video producer at different companies just thinking like yeah maybe it's time to to and and to be clear i don't want to say that that's like giving up or anything lots of people do incredible work that way just for a long time i i I was really i had been really set on making uh, on making it work as like like independently and i was beginning to think maybe that's just not in the cards and uh and that's not gonna work and and really kind of at the last minute it did it did kind of come together and and i i will say uh now we're just talking career stuff but uh but, but 
I had learned a lot of lessons doing the channel for five and a half years of it not being profitable. And one thing that over time, when, when a video would succeed, uh, like the Wes Anderson X-Men, um, I would kind of refuse to just immediately do more of the thing that succeeded and like repeat myself because I, I, I was always intent on, on making it work on my terms and being like, no, I, I want to have a variety of things. I don't want to be just the guy who does one thing over and over again. And then finally, I did learn that uh, like when when the video essay took off that that uh, no, sometimes you just have to be smart about things. And if something is connecting with people and really working maybe maybe do more of that and you can find a way to do it on board terms in a way that you were like creatively satisfied with uh, but but I, I, I at that point I stopped being stubborn and, and really realized like okay like, like Patrick stop shooting yourself in the foot like uh, if if this thing is working like 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 stick with it and and let's see where it goes and and I kind of came back around and in a way we we kind of got through the video essays, we got back to the the silly narrative shorts that we'd been doing in the first place. It's, um, I just I'm blown away by the variety of the uh, of the videos that <laughs> of the of the films that you have done your uh, your critiques of. You mentioned earlier that you had a degree in film critique. Um, where from? Where I went from? to Oberlin College. Oberlin. Yeah, out, out in a, you know, a small town in Ohio. Wow. That's pretty cool that they offered that degree track. They did. It's, uh, I mean, to me, the great irony of this is that uh, my, my interest going to college was purely film production. And, like, I, I, I and it, it turned out that at that school, it's an Oberlin is a wonderful place, to be, to be clear. And at least at the time when I was there, uh, they, their production resources and education was a little bit lacking. Uh, they, you know, they had, they didn't have like as many high-end cameras as as some other schools. But and they they did have a lot of classes though about that were about like film theory. You know, like cinema studies, analyzing mm-hmm. movies, writing mm-hmm. papers about them. A lot like an English degree, except instead of re- reading books, you watch movies. And um, and I was like, well, like, I guess I'll take those classes. And uh, even though I, all I really want to do is make movies and not just like analyze them. And uh, and and when I, I finished college, I was like, cool, I'm. I am done writing essays for the rest of my life. And, uh, and then you, that, know, you skip, you skip course, ahead six or seven works. years and uh, I end up, I'm just like, I'm just writing like 10 page essays constantly on my own. I'm making myself do it. And now it's my job. And the funny thing about <laughs> yep. it was, yep. was that, uh, that uh, the film theory education that I got at Oberlin ended up being so much more beneficial than... Uh, than, than the film production classes that I took there, the like the the classes that were just about like studying and analyzing film, also just made me a better filmmaker. Made me like understand the medium better, understand like how how craft work uh, worked, and like how to you know just how to dissect a piece of film and study all of that, and kind of broadened my uh, my tastes and and my concepts of of movies in general. And so so yeah, it's you know. I look back at, at that time in college and I really think, wow, yeah, th- those classes where I'm sitting there 
you know, writing papers about uh, the mise-en-scene in French New Wave films and, and all of that. And, mm-hmm. like, I don't know, breaking down the editing in, like, Rear Window or La Ventura and stuff like that. I'm like, oh, oh, that that actually really benefited me more than anything else. Like, well, I, it absolutely does, because those things don't change. Storytelling right. doesn't change. The The language of film doesn't change. The What changes, if you if you went to film school more than 10 years ago, anything technically you learned is completely out of date. Oh, yeah. <laughs> everything's, you know, all the, all the yeah, everything's, things are new. Everything's digital. Everyone's shooting with a, uh, uh, what's called a red camera, you know, a 4K, 4K exactly. video camera. When I when I was at at school, we were. I mean, I, I missed the days of shooting on actual film. Oh, uh, lucky you! So, I I read a movie all of you know. I I used tape. <laughs> well, well, here's the thing: Sticky you tape. talk to people of my generation, and, and and we're obsessed with that stuff because we we didn't get to experience it. <laughs> so, like, genuinely, I'm one of my major goals as far as videos that I want to make in the future is I I am in. Uh, this has been like like a bucket list video essay because I want to do it a certain way but I've really wanted to do uh, a video just about kind of the evolution of of like visual film aesthetics especially into the 21st century in the ways that uh, like digital color grading and uh, and and the shift and the shift to uh, like digital video being being the norm kind of affected the way movies look in general and uh, and, and actually getting into like what are the aesthetic benefits uh, and, and qualities of film but I don't want to do this video unless I can actually shoot part of it on film. Um, no, it wouldn't make actually, any sense unless you could, you know, I mean, right, like, like, make a comparison. And then oh, good, I mean, like, then you've got I to take it to here. a Telecine house and good luck oh, finding oh, one absolutely. of those anymore. <laughs> I, I, I mean, they do exist here. And I, I will say a thing that was very funny to me was at, uh, that initial video essay I made, the, the one about why do Marvel's movies look kind of ugly. A few months after I made that video, the president of Kodak Film called me up on the phone because he Whoa. Had, yeah, because he had watched that video and just wanted to talk to me about this. He was like, I sent this video to the heads of all the major studios, telling them, this is why you need to be using film. And um, and look, I've still got his email. So, uh, so, so you know, I'm when this happens, I will absolutely hit him up about it. He was a very nice guy. And so... But, but this is the thing, like, I, you know, I can sit here and look at movies and point and be like, I think the one shot on film look better. But, but you know, like, you can only go so far with that. I, I, I want to be able to have the experience and be able to speak, you know, like, with actual, like, like you know, like, not authoritatively, but at least know what I'm talking about when I say, like, oh, this is what is different about about doing it this way. This is what makes the actual like act of shooting it different and working with it. And so, so this is all the thing that I want to do. But, but yeah, but I, I missed the era of working on film in film school. And so, so my thing was just, and this is you know shows I guess kind of my age when I was when I was at college, uh, a lot of the cameras were still mini DV cameras. The one with the ones with the really small little tapes, mm-hmm. and it was only my senior year of college, which was 2010, uh, that we we fi- they finally started getting some more cameras that just shot on like HD memory cards. And so that was kind of my adjustment. Like DSLRs didn't really become a thing until a, like a year or two after I left college. 
You know, when I was in college... Uh, you we, went to college years after I did. I'm probably yeah. the oldest film major here. Yeah. But 80, what, Loyola Marymount University, 1981. <laughs> and yeah. I am envying the heck out of you because I did not want to be working on film. <laughs> I so did not want to be doing this. The, I wanted to work on video so bad. Yeah, the the uh, the film equipment that they gave us at UCLA was so bad. I mean, uh, well, it was all inherited from this the the local film and, and TV studios. We had you know leftovers from NBC, and they well, they rode hard, put away wet. Man. And apparently, the the United States Army. Uh, one of my uh, one of the manuals that we were given with the to uh, to show us how to operate the schools. Only 35 millimeter camera, which was a wind up 35 millimeter Bolex, whose uh, it had a screw mount, and the screw mount was so worn. How that, worn was it? That you had to tape the you had to tape the lens to the camera because if you didn't, the vibration from the motor would slowly back out the threads on the lens until it fell out on the ground. Oh my Kids god! Today. And uphill both ways yeah and the the <laughs> manual that they gave us for the camera the back pages of which and i still have the manual to this day uh and i graduated in in 1990 so it's been 20 22 years no it's been more than that well, anyway decades 32 dear 32 years has instructions on how to destroy the camera in case you're about to be captured by german nazis that's I kid, incredible. I kid That's you the not. the coolest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> we were supposed to do, uh, one of the classes was a mixing class, and we were supposed to shoot a short short subject and mix three or four tracks, and we used uh, we used mag tape, you know, mag, uh, which is sound, right. sound film, uh, and to use the mixing room, you know, you, they, you shot on, uh, you shot on eight millimeter, and you mixed this 16 millimeter track to go with it. The eight millimeter projector was broken on the night that I had it. Oh no. And, uh, there was nobody around to fix it. And you didn't own your own? No, of course. It's a projector. And that's synchronized with the synchronized with oh, the uh, oh okay you know you, there was this whole mixing studio it had to be synced with the the the, the and anyway shoot I knew film, you in those days I'd have loaned you one the film well you couldn't have because it would have to be mechanically I mean a regular a regular eight millimeter not yeah yeah one of these but uh, the projector was broken so. I, with my prior experience doing practical effects and making something out of nothing with no notice and out of out of toothpicks and and bubblegum <laughs> and making it work, I was in the hallway with a two by four and the bat the heel of my shoe banging the film pressure plate from the gate back into shape so that I could run my stupid film through the projector. <laughs> God. Hey, I'm the queen of crash edits. I could have done it. It worked. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> but that's what we had to deal with. That's how poorly our equipment was maintained. So so the moral of the story is you guys weren't so bad off. <laughs> it's true. It's true. But at the same time, you know, like, again, people of my generation look at just the way those things you were shooting looked. And we're just like, oh, man, we... We've got like 6K cameras here, and it still doesn't look as cool as those look. I think, I think, I'm sure it looked really cool. <laughs> I, I you know, I have faith in you. Hey, I mean, T grain, baby. T grain. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm happy with 
with how my movie looked and you know it's uh, i like the gear that we shot it on i have a really talented colorist who made i, I was the, also the cinematographer on this movie and so uh because uh, i you can just work faster that way if you direct mm-hmm. and shoot it yourself and so but my colorist made made my mediocre cinematography actually look good uh and and, and applied a lot of like digital film grain to it nice. and so but, but and the thing is, we are still just with with all of our like fancy, you know, like super modern, brand new gear. We're still just like, ah, oh, but we're just trying to make it look like 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 it naturally did back then. Yeah, yeah. And you know, you know, I, I'm I'm still like you know buying vintage lenses from the '80s that, and, and like finding adapters to stick them on to like modern cameras and all of that. So we're still just fetishizing like like the old stuff that you were working with back then. Yeah, well, it, and a lot of it comes down to um, uh, uh, the frequency response range and the latitude of the emulsions at the time. Oh yeah, you know which uh, you have to you have to go through all kinds of mathematical conversions to get that same result. Uh, we use something called a, a LUT or a lookup table. Oh, oh, I, I mean digital LUTs. Yeah, I'm digital very LUTs. I have a yeah. whole collection of them here on my computer. I bet you of do. Of course you do. Yeah. we. Um, when I was working at uh, Rhythm and Hughes Studios, we were working on... Um, oh, you worked at Rhythm and Hughes? Yeah. yeah uh-huh. Oh, I worked, wow. I worked in the animation department. Not in the animation department. I worked in the education department uh, with emphasis on animation. Oh, uh, that's and really interesting. We were shooting the Ang Lee uh, Incredible Hike. We were working on the effects for that. And they were shooting in Super 35, regular 35, and... uh and Panavision thirty five, oh and they had to make the CGI Hulk look like he would fit into that. Well, not only that, but they were using two different emulsions and three different formats. Lord, and, oh, and, that was a good idea. And every time they'd every time they'd switch emulsions in the middle of the production, we'd have to go back and hand adjust all of our lighting, and it was and that was the uh, that was the inciting incident for the studio to move to lookup tables. Because we weren't using them before that. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm sorry, but the fact that you just said you worked on the Ang Lee Hulk suddenly this is all I yeah, want. Yeah, I, I have about. a, I have a, I've got a, a screen credit in it. Oh my god, my uh, name's in the what's credits. What's your credit? Well, it just says Education Department, Gene Turnbow. Oh my god, this is I, I think that movie is fascinating. I, I, it's, I, it's I, a weird I, film, you know. It's but fun. So, I mean, that is probably the weirdest big-budget superhero movie anyone will ever make again. Yes, now, that's the one where they just agreed. jumped into the Hulk story without giving the backstory. Like, you already know how the Hulk became No, no. That, um, or was that, that, the, one, that was the next one, wasn't it? That's the Edward Norton one. Okay, that's, the, yeah. I'm sorry. That's the Incredible Hulk. Yeah. The, the, the Ang Lee one is... That's the one where, I mean... You know, Ang Lee was coming off of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, uh, mm. you know, just like, like cleaning up at, at, at the Oscars, the highest grossing foreign language film of all time, and 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 basically got to do whatever he wanted and decided to make it this, uh, you know, uh, very strange, like, meditation on childhood trauma that mm-hmm. also is full of comic book style, like, animated split screens and panels appearing on screen. It, it That has a, like a climactic sequence that is pretty much pure like abstract visual metaphor it is it's a movie that i i actually like think is pretty good and i and i like but also that 
most people hated when it came out and pretty much like at this point hollywood has adapted to the point where they're just like let's find a way to make sure this never happens again (laughs) yeah they they were calling it gumby hulk (laughs) wait uh, and honestly, you, you, you know, because like I, I didn't know that Rhythm and Hughes worked uh, worked on that as looks. Well, I, I know, like, because like oh, yeah, ILM yeah. was wasn't Dennis Muren the effects supervisor on that? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. For but, every one of these major films, oh, you were going to say something? No, Susan. no, no. Oh, for every one of these major films, uh, you look at the credits, and it's like six major studios, each oh, yeah. each doing some of it, and there's a reason for that. If uh, if you give all of the effects work to one studio or two studios. And one of those studios has some kind of a technical or a business problem and closes in mid-production. Yep. You are so boned. Well, mm-hmm. that and they all have different specialties. Um, Rhythm and Hughes had, you know, had their specialty, not in this film, but the fur-bearing critters. You know, yeah, I was yeah, say, yeah. Yeah. animals like the animals. big with the huge one. You know, yeah, from Narnia uh, to uh, the, the babe. You know, pie, babe pie, um, um, the life yeah. of pie. You know, there were there were no centaurs. There was no tiger. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah. So um, it was it was it was one of the more remarkable films. Anyway, that was the inciting incident for the studio moving to uh, lookup tables, and they used lookup tables uh, ever since. I'm and you that, know since, since until they closed in 2013. Right. And that that makes a lot of sense because I. I'm curious about like the reason for shooting the different formats on that because I believe uh, John did John Toll shoot that one. You know, I don't know. I think so. That name sounds familiar, but I think because the reason I- for that was because they didn't know how the action was going to go for some of the scenes they were shooting, so they had to shoot with as big uh, with as big a, a negative as they could because they didn't know how they were going to be cropping it. Right. Also, I, I, I just looked it up. Uh, Frederick Elms was the DP on that one. I just want to be clear. Uh, Toll shot, I think, several other on Lee movies. So, but yeah, I, I, I was just curious because I, I was wondering if, if for like different parts of like uh, the, the, the panels or split screens, if they wanted different formats for some of those or just the visual no, design of that so. movie. I, I think, think, I think, so I think it had, I think it had more to do with how the action scenes were shot. Okay. Uh, because they had no idea. You know, when you when you set off a bunch of chargers and you blow things up, you have no idea where the pieces are going to go. Right. So you want to shoot it with as wide an aspect ratio, you know, with, uh, I'm sorry, a wide a taking angle as you possibly can with as big, with as good a resolution as you possibly can, because you have no idea where you're going to be, you know, where that, uh, uh, the, the camera frame is going to end up having to go. So, you know, they might shoot in Super 35. I think it's just as tall as it is wide. It's a square frame. Yeah. And uh, so they might. It's, it's a Panavision aspect ratio um, uh, aperture 16 by nine. So they might be scrolling that window anywhere to get the composition. They couldn't compose the shot is essentially what I'm saying. They had to right. compose the shot afterwards while they were doing the comp- uh, compositing. This makes a lot of sense. Yeah, Sh- shooting as wide as possible and then giving themselves options in post. Yeah, and it was the I, only I mean, it was the only show that we worked on that was like that. U- usually, uh, usually when they shot action stuff, and we were doing effects for it, they knew pretty much what was going to happen and where was where it was going to go. But on that right. film, apparently not. 
Well, that was also, I think, one of the earliest movies to have like a fully CGI human character. So I imagine there, there was kind of like a learning curve to it and like figuring out how to make this work. Because it, 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 he was all motion capture, right? Uh, no, no, he was not. He was animated oh, really? pretty much oh. all the way through. There was very oh. little motion capture used. Interesting. I, I think I saw some video of Ang Lee himself in some kind of like motion capture. Oh, scene, yeah. Like that, he did, yeah, he did some. He did some. But I think I think but, it's like Richard, no, um, the two towers before we really see that. And that's, yeah. that's, that's, and, and, that's and around the, the same time. Is, you yeah, know, and, you're, and it's, you're it's, not wrong, though. Ang Lee was in a mocap suit. He did do some of the yeah, shots. Yeah, but not for the whole film. But yeah, but right. that was just for some of it. It wasn't for most of it. Most of That it, makes sense. Most of it, the Hulk like, was hand animated. Wow. That. But by the way, uh, I hope your listeners do not mind that this has just turned into an episode about the uh, visual effects on the Hulk. You know <laughs> yeah, what? We, we, a lot of these interviews kind of go into the deep dive of some aspect or another, and, and that's okay. I, I just think this is so interesting, and it's such an interesting movie. So the opportunity <laughs> to talk to anyone who worked on it, I'm just like, I, I want to know everything. Yeah, the... Uh... I think the the Hulk was uh, right around when we were developing the new rigging system as well, because before I can't remember if if, if the Hulk was before Garfield or not. Do you remember? Oh my God! No, I th- I think I don't. I, I think Garfield was two thousand four, and the Hulk was two thousand nine, wasn't it? Th- no, no, Hulk no. was two thousand three. Two thousand three. Okay. Yeah, Garfield's two thousand four. Hulk is two thousand three. Right. Okay, so Hulk was two thousand three. This is the majority of my brain just moving. Hulk was two thousand. Hulk was 2003, Garfield was 2004, and after Garfield, uh, they figured out that it was taking uh, between three and six weeks to rig a character, and that wasn't fast enough because they were going to, they were uh, faced with rigging a bunch of characters for Chronicles of Narnia. They had to do like 40 of them, and there was no way they were taking, you know, three months a a piece to rig a character, so they had to work out a rigging kit and that's that's 2005 by the way. Right, 2005. Uh yeah, that so that timeline all falls together. So, uh they were they built a they created a rigging kit that identified where all the joints would go and what kind of muscle systems and everything uh would hang on these just by def, by uh declaring general parameters and then mm-hmm. to hit the build button and uh a good rigger could have a basic rig built for a character in half an hour. Oh my god. Yeah, if if you had somebody who was really good, they could have a basic rig in half an hour and a polished one in a week. That's amazing. Next in I'm your time, like, next in your timeline is Night at the Museum, where they sure needed that. Right. Yeah. And that's two thousand six. Yeah, I worked yeah. as I worked as a technical animator on that one. Really, I, I, this is this is also interesting, and also like when you lay out the uh, the years these movies came out, you can just see the escalation in the amount of. CG heavy films in terms of like movies with major CG mm-hmm. characters and the way it's like every year it's like the numbers double. Well, and there's a reason for that and that is that uh, that was when Moore's Law was kicking into high gear right around then and as computer speeds increased and their capacity increased our ability to create characters and render complex scenes increased as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rendering time to give you an idea for a scene in uh, uh, Garfield was about 45 minutes on average. Uh, oh, wow. By the time, you know, between an hour, uh, 45 minutes to an hour and a half, something like that per frame. Uh, by the time we got to Life of Pi, 
it was still 45 minutes to an hour and a half per frame, but we were rendering four times the number of pixels and six times the number of layers. Yeah, and and also in 3D. Well, it, it was 3D to start with, you know. In right, uh, Garfield was a 3D film. Okay, there were I think two Garfield movies, both done yeah. in, both done in 3D. Okay, was Garfield shot in 3D or post converted? Um, post converted. Okay, but okay. well, there's a, a I think there's a studio called Studio D. Yeah, yeah. That does the 3D conversions, and uh, which is weird because they don't have any of the original assets, and they have to make uh, volume proxies for all the geometry. It's a oh really intensive process, and frankly, if they had just hired the original uh, effects people to do those conversions, uh, they could have saved themselves probably a couple million dollars. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, in hindsight, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. But they still do that. You know, it's still actually cheaper to have it done as a post-process in most cases for the whole film, because not every shot is an effects shot, right. uh, than it is to uh, just have them do it and do the conversion afterwards. Right. But anyway, um, yeah, um, the complexity of the motion pictures uh, and the images created uh, just skyrocketed. And it was because of the additional computing power that was available. But they couldn't budget any more time to do it. Uh, so you still had this cap of, you know, let's see, let's see how much we can render out in a frame in an hour and a half. And that's our functional quality cap. Mm-hmm. So, but the, the quality of films, uh, well, there's a difference between Gar- the there's a difference between Garfield and a live, you know, a, a apparently live action Bengal tiger. I mean, come on. Yep, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that for most of that film, I think all of that film, there was never a real tiger. No, there there was no tiger, none at all. Yeah, I I, I mean, most that movie. I think if you break it down, you would know better than I would. But isn't like most of it animated? Because isn't like most of the movie like. Just the boat and the main human are real, and yeah. everything else. Everything, there is digital. absolutely everything else is digital. The tiger was never real. The tiger was one hundred percent animated. And a lot of people got upset. Oh, how could you endanger that boy? <laughs> well, I didn't. <laughs> I mean, obviously, you know, you you guys did spectacular work, and it, mm-hmm. it, it all worked. It, it, you know, it, uh, you know, it won a VFX Oscar, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it did. It won, a BAFTA award. it won a BAFTA award and, and Oscars uh, while our animators and our technical people were in London on stage at the BAFTA awards, winning their BAFTA awards for Life of Pi. At home, they and the rest of us were all getting pink slips in email saying, saying don't show up on Monday. That's I- I remember just reading about this and yeah. like how how insane and heartbreaking this was. Yeah, and they and laid thinking, off. Like, this makes no sense. How are they, like, you know, how are these people winning deservedly all the awards mm-hmm. and, and and yet the company's closing? Yeah, well. Money, greed. Yeah, money yeah. and greed, basically. Uh, uh, the way I heard it, and I can't confirm this, but John Hughes siphoned off a bunch of the studio's uh, cushion assets to finance his wife's uh, cosmetic firm, which failed later. Really? And they had a bad deal. They cut a bad deal with um, uh, who, who, who did the Yogi Bear movie? Was it Warner? 
I think it was yeah. It would be uh, Warner. Think, it's think, a Hanna Barbera property. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And they Warner cut a bad deal with Warner. They did a negative pickup deal with Warner. They picked up uh, four million dollars of the production costs, and they agreed to be paid out of the, out of the net profits. Oh, what? See, and you you get it. What you get it? What the what the heck were they thinking? You know, the, maybe they really thought Yogi Bear was a sure fire blockbuster. Yeah, the translation of the phrase deferred payment in Hollywood is bend over. Yeah, yeah. it's no, it's never going to happen. <laughs> Nobody years. ever gets paid on deferred ever, ever. And no oh film God. ever escapes the accounting department making a profit. This is killing me to hear about. I'm like, and, this and so, is what happened. Yeah, that's what happened. And so when oh Yogi Bear, uh, you know, it did okay, but the studio never saw a lick of money from it and right. they were into it for four million dollars so they they bang four million dollars out the window and then all of a sudden hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of technical people were out on the street it took me four years to get my back pay oh my god and some of the some of my friends who were animators who were into the studio for like two hundred thousand dollars worth of vacation pay because they never took vacations they right. ne they never saw their money that, I mean, that's a life-changing amount of money, a quarter million dollars, yeah, you know, yeah, $150,000 of vacation pay that they never saw, a quarter million dollars that they never saw. It's just astonishing uh, to me. Yeah. I, I, for, for this thing, like, you know, I'm just aware of the, like, like, I don't, I don't work in the VFX industry. I don't, I, I don't like, you know, know any people who do, but everyone is kind of aware of the general state of things in, in that you know, things are like spread too thin. Everyone is having to like underbid for the same gigs. There's like too much work, and and like you know, everyone is like you know pulling unrealistic hours and not getting paid mm -hmm. enough for for all of this work. And uh, but but you rarely hear it kind of laid out as plainly as this. Like this is this is the kind of stuff happening there, and it's it, it's such a shame. Well, there were uh, there was press going around at the time how some uh, studio visual effects supervisors were saying, it is my job to put at least one of these visual effects studios out of business before the end of the production. That's, that's insane. Yeah, that's their business model. So you, on the other hand, are coming up at it from the other direction. You started something and... It started growing nice segue. nicely, yeah. And then I did all of, you started I did the sneaking of my visual effects myself. Yeah, and you <laughs> snuck you snuck your story in over the transom, and then all of a sudden you've got a oops, we made a movie situation. How cool is that? It's it's pretty cool. Really, really nice segue, by the way. But uh, <laughs> I'm, now but I want to animate the coconut. I bought the company. Now I'm going to drive one over a cliff. <laughs> Too soon. Sorry. <laughs> I, I mean, I I will say there were many times. So the way that we would this, of course, I had to make my life difficult and have the coconut fly, which we did with uh, by by rigging some like plumbing pipes that I screwed into the back and then covering it in like chroma green tape, and then a person in just like a like full body uh chroma green suit would puppeteer it and then it usually ended up i would just have to like roto out the coconut for all of these shots and i will say having done i don't know a hundred something roto shots of of this coconut there were many times where because and to be clear i i have never like i'm like proficient in adobe after effects but i have uh, no experience with actual like 3D animation. Okay, yeah, modeling. dude. Uh, and Da Vinci, Re Da Vinci yeah. Resolve 
the latest version, version 18, has a an automatic tracking and matte feature. You just do a paint stroke over the part you want it to auto-track and matte out, and it does it. Oh, my God. As, 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 as a single process. Da Vinci? Yeah. That, yeah, or, that, or, that or hire Gene to do it. Yeah, uh, 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 honestly, like, like, hopefully for the next one we have we have a bigger budget. But, uh, but yeah, I, I definitely had the thought many times, like, I wish I could just do 3D animation because doing a CG coconut would be so much easier. Yeah, like, I, yeah. yeah. well, yes and no, because if you have a CG coconut, then you have to shoot light probes. Oh, I mean, I mean there's that, you know. but I will say the amount of sleepless nights I've had trying to roto, like, the very thin fibers. Oh, that, God. That, 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 you had doing, to do like, it all by shots. hand. Oh, my yeah. God. It, it is... Uh, I get you caught me on a good on a good evening for this because um, <laughs> most of this week I, I handed in the finished movie yesterday morning mm-hmm. and before that I basically didn't sleep for the last four days and my body was in in bad shape and uh, and yeah and that that comes down to uh, you know just just taking on too much stuff myself I will say to be really clear I had a really great team. On, on this thing and uh and and a, a very talented professional like actually good vfx artist named fred kim helped mm-hmm. with our more difficult shots that i was able to hand off to him um but yeah it was uh it was a tough time and i definitely made me think like okay next next time we, we we make a project let's try to get a bigger budget and be able to hire a few more people to uh to help well with and the, the other side of it is just experience you know like you go into a shot and you know you have uh you have this this um this thing that needs to float through the room and you know you, you know automatically you're thinking in your head okay we've got to shoot a light probe uh uh we've got to you know, we have to have these certain resources on hand, uh, and you have to think about the angle you're going to shoot it from to minimize the amount of map traveling mats you're going to have uh, end up oh, doing, yeah. and all of that stuff. And that's you know, you have to have a an effects a visual effects supervisor on the set to help you keep track of all that because it's more yes. than you can keep in your head while directing a shot yourself. It's it's definitely true. Yeah, there's a uh, again there's trade offs to, to all of it. You know what's nice about doing it the way we did it is we already have all the physical movements right there, and uh, and we and and it you know it removes the step of of like matching the light and and hand animating it so it you know it moves with realistic physics and, and stuff like that. But then also we end up with this nightmare of roto work. So you know it's a uh, well, I will say, if, if nothing else, and I, I, I'm not, you know, mm-hmm. and to be clear, I want to say, uh, uh, the movie's great. Everyone watch it next Friday on, on <laughs> Nebula. It's a fun time for, for everyone. But also, it was an incredible learning experience. Sure. Because oh, sure. We, we went into it thinking it would take about two months and be a 25-minute short, and uh, it took a year and was a feature film, and, <laughs> you know... That's that's you just the, the best that way. way. That's the best way to learn. Now you were doing your video essays while this was going on, right? You didn't stop well, everything else. Well, here's the thing. So again, like I said, I thought this would take a couple months. I thought this would be out <laughs> last July, and so I took a couple months off from making regular videos. Ooh. And then, because the way it goes is like, you know, my main income is the the sponsors on the videos. And, you know, for the sponsors to be booked, I have to schedule my videos months ahead of time. And so, like, I do kind of have deadlines. And so, uh, what happened was 
when it came to August last year, suddenly uh, I had scheduled videos thinking the movie would be done by then. Oops. So I had to fi- kind of find a way uh, for the last, I don't know, um, eight or nine months to uh, juggle producing videos which is normally a full-time job on its own also with doing post-production and like pickup shoots on the movie um which you know was a challenge at times uh so i I would often try to make smaller videos and say ah here's a simple topic this one this one probably be 10 minutes long and if it's not clear already i'm really bad at uh you know, trying to make smaller. <laughs> I, I, I'm never good at, at, at estimating the scale of projects. So every time I would say this will be an easy 10 minute video, it would be a 35 minute long video. Mm. And uh, and so yeah. So uh, anyway, uh, long story short, um, I'm really relieved this is finished uh, because it's been uh, an exhausting year. And also a really fun, rewarding one, and the movie is great, and everyone watch it. Okay, we <laughs> Absolutely. will. We'll be there. One of the great things about it is coconut with googly eyes. There is absolutely no way you can watch this and not laugh. It's going to be a great show. We're like, really looking forward to it. I think it's pretty funny, and I will say that when the trailer for Everything Everywhere All at Once came out, oh, and, oh, and oh, that no. rock, vindication, and, and, well, and, and, vindication in one way. Also, when the shot of the rock with googly eyes showed up, oh, oh, no. just thinking, because also our, our movie does involve a multiverse as well, oh, and no. so the idea of what are the odds. And, yeah. and again, to be fully clear, <laughs> uh, I know when that that movie was shooting around the time we were starting our season back in early 2020. Uh-huh. So, you know, th- there was no theft here. This is a weird convergence of ideas. Right. Yeah. Uh, but but the odds of another multiverse movie involving googly eyes on an inanimate object. And the strangest <laughs> thing is before we decided on a coconut, we we all we were going to make Charles a rock. <laughs> Oh, oh my no. God! And I, it was I'd have been crushed. so weird. close. Yeah, I'd yeah. have been. Yeah, yeah. You really dodged a coconut there, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. I was very relieved, and uh, and especially when I went to see the movie. Finally, I was like, "Oh, okay. This has very little in common in terms of the actual story with what we're doing. Just a couple so, of buzzwords, and that's exactly, it. Really, exactly. Really. So, so yeah. It, it's just all, all I can say is this is clear. Some something is in the water, and this is the year of like I don't know multiverse projects coming out. <laughs> yeah. If there are googly eyes in Doctor Strange, man, I'm gonna I'm quit. I quit. <laughs> yeah. I, I I mean there is minor spoilers. There's a part where Doctor Strange has a third eye in his head, but but not a googly eye. No, so. the googly eye of Agamotto. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I've got my next prop lined up. Uh, that's well, honestly that sounds pretty good. I mean <laughs> I mean yeah, slide it into Feige's DMs for the next one. Ladies and gentlemen, we have talk, been talking to Patrick H. Willems about. Uh, the Charl Project and all of his other work. Uh, you can visit his channel on YouTube, and there is a Patreon to which you su- can subscribe as well. You'll find information on both of those in the uh, the show scheduling post, you know, the article on the sci-fi.radio website. Patrick, thank you so much for being with us. You have been a lot of fun to talk to. We ran way over, but it was so worth it. 
Uh, this is a recurring problem whenever I appear on a podcast. I'm thinking <laughs> people say, wow, this is our longest episode ever. Uh, but, but guys, thank you so much for having me. This has been such a pleasure. And thank you for indulging me as I just wanted to know about the making of Hulk. I could have, I could have spent another hour asking about <laughs> You know, we could do it. We could do an episode on stuff like this. You know, I, we I could, it. just, I, a, just I on filmmaking in general, you know, you are, uh, you are an expert on film critique. And and filmmaking in general, and and uh, and if we do that, we'll round you up. Yeah, please do. You you know how to reach me. Yes, no, we, do. we do. We sure do now. <laughs> anyway, thank you for joining us. It has been it's it's been a real pleasure. It's a genuine treat. It it, it has. Thank you so much. I, I've really enjoyed this. You have been listening to episode two hundred and forty-two of Sci-Fi Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for Saturday, June eleventh, twenty twenty-two. Our guest this evening has been videographer, cinema expert, and filmmaker Patrick H. Lawrence, who, apart from his popular YouTube channel on film criticism, has created an epic film about a battle spanning the multiverse, featuring the antics of a coconut with googly eyes stuck on. Watch for Night of the Coconut on the Nebula streaming service. This episode will air again at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern tomorrow afternoon, and two more times on the following Thursday and Saturday mornings at 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern. Once all of the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode as a podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and on our own website at SciFi.Radio. SciFi.Radio is listener-supported sci-fi geek culture radio, and the vast majority of our funding comes from listeners just like you. If you enjoy programming like what you just heard, we ask you to please visit patreon.com slash sci-fi radio and pledge 5 or $10 a month to help keep the station on the air. That's patreon.com slash sci-fi radio. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by sci-fi illustrator Mark Schumeister. The engineer was Christian Dean Fire. The was Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by science fiction grandmaster... Larry Niven. This program is copyright 2022 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon on Sci-Fi.Radio. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.